What's going on? Welcome to the Pete Callender Show. Thank you for listening. I am Pete. You can hear the latest episode at thepetecallendershow.com and, of course, on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Join the Facebook group, The Pete Callender Show. You can find it on the Facebook where we solve all of the world's problems and uh, try to have fun doing it. The show is actually made possible by patrons, uh, folks like Terry and Teresa, Stephen and Nick and Peggy and Eric. And so we thank you. I thank you. Uh, Also, the show is made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus Store. Uh, It's on Main Street in downtown Clyde, across from the anti-aircraft gun. Not kidding. So Tim is the owner, and he retired from the Army and took over the store from his dad, Buddy, who opened the store 31 years ago. Buddy, you could say, was the OG, or I guess would be the OG, the original Old Grouch. Uh, Old Grouches has a mix of modern and vintage stuff, um, like military hats from all the different branches. Uh, You never know what you're going to find there because Tim gets stuff all the time, and he's always interested in your vintage and unique items too, so bring them on down. Uh, Emergency preparedness stuff, he's got that. Um, Camo, T-shirts, hats, dog tags, which, by the way, great idea for kids. Uh, So uh, go on down to Old Grouch's. It's an old-school, traditional military surplus store with a mix of modern and vintage. Oldgrouch.com is the website, and he can ship directly to you. If you're looking for something, Tim has it, or he knows where to get it. And if you go to the website, use the promo code PETE and get 10% off. Or just mention my name when you go in there. Same thing. Oldgrouch.com. So let's talk about the coronavirus. The first case... The first case, I'm sorry, like, I, I want to call it the Wuhan virus just in spite, you know, just <laughs> is there are people who are saying that you can't call it the coronavirus because that's racist, which, of course, it's not racist. <clears throat> and uh, telling me that it's racist to call a uh, to call a virus the name of the place from whence it came um, when that's what we do and have done. Humans have been doing this for a very long time. So. Um, it almost makes me want to call it that, even though I never called it that. I do like the sound of the COVID-19, COVID, because apparently coronavirus is a sort of a generic kind of virus. And I'm no expert on this stuff. I'm just going to bring you some stories that give some details uh, and kind of direct you to places to go. For example, you can go to cdc.gov, coronavirus, cdc.gov, and then the little forward slash, is, which is the one that leans to the right, uh, cdc.gov forward slash coronavirus. You can also go to the state website. The Department of Health and Human Services has uh, set up a page, which is ncdhhs.gov forward slash coronavirus. So a couple of uh, stories that uh, came down the pike uh, over the last few days. Uh, obviously, now we're starting to see cases in North Carolina. The uh, the first case of COVID-19 was confirmed in Chatham County, I believe. Um, the North Carolina State Laboratory of Public Health confirmed um, that a second Chatham County resident now tested positive uh, for the novel coronavirus or COVID-19. According to a news release from the Chatham County government, Uh, Last week, the man traveled in late February to an area in Italy that is now the site of a COVID-19 outbreak. While there, he experienced two days of mild flu-like symptoms. Eventually, the fever resolved and the symptoms improved, and so he flew back to the U.S. the next day. This was late February. However, 
Soon after, North Carolina health officials were notified by the Georgia Department of Health that the man was in contact to a case in that state, meaning that he had been in proximity to somebody in Georgia that had contracted COVID-19. So the Chatham County Public Health Department, they go and do a home visit, they collect specimens, and they find out, oh, actually, you tested positive for it as well. So it leads me to believe that it's kind of like he may have given it to the person in Georgia. <laughs> and then the Georgia person uh, reports it. They get uh, That then notifies, obviously, health department officials. They say they were in contact with this fella in Chatham County, and then they test the Chatham County guy, and he has it too. <clears throat> so here's how the uh, Charlotte Observer localizes the story, because it's all about localization. See, <clears throat> this is one of the... Because, well, all right, without going down too uh, too far down this rabbit hole, this is one of the things about the way media approach their job, this localizing tactic, which I'm not arguing against, okay? I'm not saying that this is a terrible tactic and should never be done ever, ever again. I'm just pointing out that this is how newsrooms, media operations, how they operate because uh, it works, localizing something. So you take a story... And the, the classic example recently <clears throat> was not just this coronavirus story, obviously, but it's also the, the great Christmas tree shortage of 2019. Do you remember this story? You probably saw all sorts of stories at the local level about how there are not enough Christmas trees. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? There are no Christmas trees, right? <clears throat> so where did that come from? It originated from a national story, which was then localized by newsrooms across America. And so everybody had to do this story from a local perspective, which means they run on down to the local tree lot, they interview uh, the, the shopper, they interview the guy at the tree lot running the lot, they may interview a farmer, a tree farmer. Uh, but it's all about localizing that story, which came from a national source. That's what we see with this COVID-19 story as well. There's this massive effort underway to localize where there was now it's becoming uh, now it's localizing itself basically because it's spreading right when initially you started having uh, all of these stories in the local press about could it happen here are we prepared well what that does is it builds this um it builds anticipation i don't want to say hype because it is an important story this is a public health issue and so yeah we're all going to have to start adjusting our lives i think uh, around uh, you know, trying to combat the spread of this COVID-19. And so what this means is if you are at high risk for it, which is uh, elderly or your immune system is compromised some way, then chances are you would be uh, more susceptible to it and to death from it. And so you probably want to take steps to limit exposure if you can. And um, that means a lot of public events, public gatherings are getting canceled. I just saw a story this morning that said the big festival, what's it called, Coachella and Stagecoach, these two big, I don't know, millennial gatherings. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I think all of the Bachelor contestants, that's where they all go and they meet or something. So, um, they're, so they're talking about moving it to October. But for North Carolinians, there's a, there's a bigger event coming up. It's the Republican National Convention. And so Jim Morrill at the Charlotte Observer, he looks at uh, the convention and the headline writers say, could virus cancel GOP convention? 
For now, organizers are monitoring things, which is an interesting headline. Why wouldn't you just call it coronavirus? You know, I mean, I, I, I'm unclear as to why you just called it a virus when everywhere else it's called coronavirus, but whatever. Uh, as many as 50,000 people from around the world are expected to come to Charlotte this summer for the Republican National Convention. But could the convention be canceled? Uh, the answer to that question is yes, by the way. The, the can- I mean, it could happen, sure. I mean, we could also be blown up by aliens, right, who are putting in an interspace bypass and Earth just happens to be in the way. Like the hyperspatial express route just runs right through our galaxy and we didn't check the notification board uh, as a planet. And so we're getting blown up to make way for this uh, for this bypass. I mean, that could happen, too. I mean, who's to say it couldn't? Like their Democratic counterparts, he writes, organizers of the Republican convention say they are keeping an eye on the situation. To be sure, he says later on in the piece, there is no indication yet that either party is ready to make such a drastic step. And there hasn't been a confirmed case of COVID-19 in Mecklenburg County. See, this was the hook that they used, that he used. This is the hook that, uh, could it be canceled? Maybe. But you find out the maybe part later on in the story. This is a classic journalism tactic, okay? Newspapers have been doing this forever, right? The, the big headline, the screaming headline with the big T's. And then you got to read through the article to get to the point where it says, maybe, not sure yet, everybody's watching to see what happens. So no indication that either party is ready to take such a drastic step. There hasn't been a single confirmed case of Mecklenburg County uh, in Mecklenburg County yet, he says. Um, at least two conventions uh, scheduled for the Charlotte Convention Center have actually been canceled, though. See, to me, that's, that, that should probably be higher up in the story. That's just my take on it. I, I, well, what do I know, though? I'm just a, I'm just a little old podcaster. All right, we welcome to the program David Harsanyi. He is a senior writer at the National Review, and he is the author of a book called First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. You can get that at Amazon.com. Uh, David, welcome to the show. I appreciate you making time for us today. You doing well? I'm doing well. Good. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, you had a, a piece uh, the other day about uh, the coronavirus Um you claim or you say in this piece, I don't claim to possess any special insight into the matter, which is why I wanted you on. <laughs> because You have no insight uh, into the matter. Uh, so why did you feel the need to, I don't know, come out and write this piece about how you don't know anything about the thing that you're writing? That's usually not something editors would let you do, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, the reason I wrote that was because so many other people do pretend to have insight into the matter. So <laughs> sort of negation, or I guess you'd call it. But, uh, I mean, the larger point of the piece, it's not really even a piece, it was just a blog post, was that I, uh, you know, I just wish there were more grown-ups out there, frankly, and um, I don't think we have a media that can be trusted before this began. Some of the glee and some of the uh, hysteria surrounding coronavirus, or what I think is hysteria at least. Again, I have no special insight or anything. It's just, uh, call it an educated guess, or, or maybe not even educated, but uh, is uh, seems a little bit politically charged uh, 
to me and seems that people are most hopeful that bad things will happen to help their political fortunes. Terrible thing to say, but that's what I feel. And I uh, just wanted to point out that out and also that I didn't think the president was acting in a presidential way by tweeting out ridiculous things when there are immunocompromised Americans and older Americans who, at the very least, uh, are scared about this and, and, and need to be reassured. So I was just wondering where all the grown-ups were, and I, I'm not exactly sure where they are yet. Yeah, you're right that there's a vast space between panic mongering and flippant dismissal. Um, And it seems like, though, in our society, we just get the feast or the famine. I think that's those are the options, it seems like, particularly when it comes to this kind of coverage. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. So much hysteria about everything all the time. And I'm not exactly sure how that's helpful, even if we are in for something that is, is going to be very bad. And obviously, it's not good, no matter how we look at it. The coronavirus thing is, is, is something we need to deal with. Um, typically, I would say that we overreact in the sense, not that we overreact in our prep, preparation, but that we overreact in our media and the way we talk about these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a gigantic space between this being dismissive of something like this and being hysterical about it. And uh, it would be nice if people could stake out some some spot there in, in that massive space in between those two extremes. So I recall I was reading your piece and I I just recalled there was a bit on Saturday Night Live years and years ago. Jerry Seinfeld was the guest host and he's playing an anchor, one of the two anchors on a you know local newscast. And the entire newscast is simply hyping what's going to kill you, you know, it's a household item, it's uh, in your garage, it's uh, on your way to work or school, and they never tell you what the danger is or they never pay off the tease. It's just a succession of escalating teases about how you're going to die. And, I mean, you've been in media a long time, and you know this is sort of how the media operates, right? As a reporter and columnist, you you write the big headline and then the inverted pyramid, you know, you get all the information up front and all, but the payoff is never really what the headline screams, right? This is is uh, sort of the standard operating procedure. So why should we be surprised now? Right. I mean, that's always been true, right? I mean, uh, you know, that the, if it bleeds, it leads, all of that stuff. But, um, you know, one of the things about social media, and I, I, in some sense, I'm a big fan, and in some sense, I think it's just a garbage, right. but <laughs> is that it helps connect us in ways that allow us to deal with things uh, that are big, better than in the old days when we didn't really know what was going on elsewhere with any sort of real specificity, right? So I can say, oh, we learn more about what's going on in Italy. We learn more about what's going on here. We connect the dots. It helps us prepare, you know, in, in ways that perhaps we weren't able to do before. But really all it has done, in my view, is create more hysteria and panic. I don't know. First of all, we don't know what's go- really going on simply because some doctor in Italy tweets something out. But yet, you know, it's spread across all of uh, social media by people who find some reason, political reason, to latch on to the worst, you know, the most hysterical person or the most alarmed person. Doesn't mean that I'm not, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be alarmed. I'm just saying I don't feel like that's a full view of it. So what what I'm trying to say is, I guess, is that the the social media and the reporters on social media put a lot of they take the worst thing that they can find and they 
spread it to millions of people in ways that perhaps it wouldn't have even happened when we had a more centralized media. I'm not sure that that's a good thing. I, obviously, I'm working through this myself to some extent. Sure. But w- w- we'll see how it ends up. Like, so I heard someone yesterday say that it's a horrible thing, you know, that like 10% of, of people who get this are going to die. That's a massive number. It's mm-hmm. a massive amount of people. If that doesn't come true, should that person ever be on media? Should he ever be interviewed again? Should he ever be put forward again? I don't think so, but I suspect he will be anyway, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, and so you're talking about a couple things, right? There's the gatekeeper aspect that the traditional media used to, that role used to be played by traditional media, right? In the old days, and when you talk about centralized uh, centralized media, there was pros and cons to that, right? Like the pro is that it, it helps to filter out some of the garbage, but the con would be, uh, that some good stuff doesn't get out either because, you know, the gatekeepers don't want it right. out. Um, and social media in reverse. It's, you know, everything gets out there, <laughs> garbage included. And what we lack now is any kind of context to put anything into perspective. All we see are these, yeah, the the, the loudest voices uh, get the most retweets. Um, and that's not necessarily reality, but I, I like, I, I there was a line you had here where you said social media could have been immensely beneficial in helping navigate the virus. And I guess I find myself lamenting what could have been as well when it comes to social media. It turns out everybody with their own printing press might not be the best way to keep everybody informed after all. I, I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, you know, to some extent, I like it. So when Paul Krugman says something, I just tweeted, you know, he's, he made some remark, right? So I get to go on and say, well, that's not, you know, you're missing this aspect or that's not true or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a good part of social media that we get to. It's almost like an immediate it's fact check. So my columns, I used to write columns when I first started out, and I wouldn't hear from anybody. Maybe some people would send me letters, et cetera. Um, but now it is automatically fact checked, and sometimes people are right, and I'm wrong, and I miss something, whatever it is. Um, the problem is, though, that the blue check marks who are supposed to still be gatekeepers to some extent now accentuate the worst aspects of something and, and you know, and are not to be trusted. And that that's, I think, a big problem. And that goes for social media. Uh, so I'm not talking about when I say that there are crazy things being thrown around in social media, I'm talking about blue checkmark folks doing it. I know they're actually white checkmarks, but you know what I mean? <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> But I never actually they're, wait. I never actually problem. thought about that. They are actually white check marks on a blue background. I never considered that. <laughs> right. But anyway, we call them blue check marks. That's fine by me. We don't have to be that specific. It's like I, I'm not sure that the brown shirts were very, you know, brown <laughs> shirts for sure or whatever. Um, but you know what I mean. These are people who have been, and I have one too. You know, for you know, given a blue check mark. I don't know what that means. I guess it means I'm the real person writing under that name or whatever. Right. But the problem there is that uh, they're not trusted. You know, we can't really trust all of them either because there are a lot of grifters with blue check marks, etc. So I don't know. It's complicated. But the problem is that I think that mostly it, it, we, we breed hysteria on both sides. It's never a calming there's never a calming effect where, where most blue check marks are like, listen, you know, this is a problem, but it's not going to be as terrible as we think. Or very rarely does that happen. Is part of that, though, due to the fact that a lot of reporters um, just don't have the experience necessary to understand, like, particularly in a case like this, this is some pretty, you know, involved information when it comes to mortality rates you got statistics you got you know medical biological components like there's a lot of stuff here and reporters are not experts in in this subject material right yeah it's a very good point
point. So you remember the whole Iran deal thing where Ben Rhodes said, you know, uh, you know, he had created an echo chamber because you had 20-somethings who didn't understand anything, and they were just, you know, about the issues and were just told what to say, and they repeated it, et cetera. You know, this is even more complicated, and I think you have reporters that, you know, you, they're on a beat, and they just find the person who tells them what, you know, they find an expert who will tell them what they want to hear, and they just repeat what that person says. It's not, you know, I'm sure there are, it's like, uh, I'm sure there are, 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 are doctors out there who, who, who are more inclined to say, don't, you know, let's not panic over this, but they find the most panicky person because it's going to get them the most hits, mm-hmm. the most retweets from their fellow panicky, you know, reporters who like to hear, uh, you know, who want to hear that, that things are going to be bad for Donald Trump, et cetera. Listen, I, I don't think, I'm not one of these people who thinks that that most reporters are out there, you know, hoping something bad happens. But there are definitely, there is a percentage, and it's not a small one, of reporters who I think hope that Donald Trump's election re- chances will be undermined by what's going on right now. Not so much the disease, but maybe the the economic, you know, the, the, the market falling, et cetera. So, and, and that's ugly. And uh, it used to be more subtle, but now I think because of social media, we see exactly how a lot of these people are. Right. Well, I think that's the thing. It's social media, particularly Twitter, has been just awful for the credibility of a lot of reporters at, you know, otherwise would have been, you know, respectable outlets and respected uh, reporters and journalists that you actually get you get these peaks into their mentality. And what used to be probably reserved for the newsroom, gallows humor kind of, you know, snark now is out there on social media for everybody to see. And I don't know how you go about trusting somebody when you know all of their, you know, how their mind works on these types of stories. Like you mentioned in the piece, uh, Trump's Chernobyl, that, you know, people are wondering, is this Trump's Chernobyl, which I guess is worse than Trump's Katrina? Is that I'm not sure what the scale is, um, but so the first when I saw Trump's Katrina, I thought, oh, why was there a failure of local and state leadership in response to a catastrophe? Because that was Katrina. So I was wondering, like, yeah, I know. I mean, they blame. <laughs> listen, I was not a fan of George Bush to blame him for what happened in Katrina was ridiculous, right? But because people constantly just repeat it, repeat it all the time, it becomes a fact. Um, Chernobyl. I mean, we're saying this before. That Chernobyl column comes out when they were literally like one, there was like one death from coronavirus in the United States, right? right? Um, so this is Trump's Chernobyl, uh, you know, is is just ridiculous. Like, you know, I, I saw there was this uh, global, I think I mentioned it in the piece I wrote, but there was some global index where it had us ranked like number one prepared for pandemics. But we still act like we're a third world country here <laughs> and that no one's going to be able to handle this thing. It's It's really... Uh, it's really off-putting, but that's what the Washington Post thrives on. And as you just want to go back, it's not really the gallows humor. I mean, I, 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 at least I, because I guess I, you know, worked in newsrooms and stuff. I get that part of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's when you realize that someone like I mean, I'm just going to say someone like John Harwood is that his name at CNN now. Yeah. You know, he uh, looks like a respectable newsman, like a traditional, like aesthetically speaking, he looks like someone I should trust, right? He is, you know, he's just a terrible partisan, you know, dishonest, just the worst kind of partisan. And yet when he's on TV, if I just watched him on TV, it would seem like someone who's really, you know, 
trying to find the truth and, and, and relay some, you know, hard truths to the American people. But when you see him on Twitter, it's a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of reporters that were just like that, meaning, you know, you read their writing and they, they seem like someone who is professional. But when you see him on Twitter, they seem like someone who's just a complete partisan. And that's... Yeah. Uh, or unhinged. For anyone who's on Twitter. Yeah, and unhinged and uh, overly woke, I guess. Uh, like this uh, uh, this argument that has erupted, I guess this was from Chris Hayes, not that I'm arguing he looks the part of a credible journalist, but Chris Hayes over at MSNBC, uh, you know, asking whether or not the Wuhan virus is a racist term. Like, uh, I don't, I, I thought they named viruses after where they came from. Like, was it the uh, dengue fever or Rocky Mountain spotted fever, right? W- weren't these named after the areas where they erupted? Spanish flu. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, and that was unfair, actually, the Spanish flu, I think. But the, the thing is, it actually is fair to say and to make sure that we know that China let this thing get out of hand because, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an authoritarian place where, where they don't are dishonest and wouldn't let, you know, didn't give us a heads up to prepare, et cetera. But yeah, I mean that. Yeah, having a a ridiculous argument over that. But at least Chris Hayes, I don't think. See, Chris Hayes, I don't think hides who he is. Right. right? He's a like Sean Hannity doesn't hide who he is. I'm actually okay with that. I think all of us should be more transparent about what we believe in, and that would let us be able to judge uh, where everyone's coming from because everyone is biased in some sense uh, in how they view the world, and I think that that's okay. It's the people who pretend that they don't have a bias that bother me and that who clearly do that bother me far, far more than someone like Chris Hayes or Sean Hannity, who I know where they're coming from. David Harsanyi, he is a senior writer at National Review. You can read his work there. He's also the uh, author of a book, First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. And we appreciate your time, as always. Good to talk with you again, David. And uh, we hope to have you back soon. Anytime. Take care. So the director of the Wake County Division of Public Health, a person by the name of Chris Kipps, spent about half an hour uh, the other day trying to allay public concern about North Carolina's first case of COVID-19. And the governor and state health officials informed the public that uh, presumptive tests from the state lab um, show that a Wake County man had contracted Uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19 and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, are going to be following up with their own set of tests. Um, And uh, against this backdrop, a lot of people, I guess everyone's running out and buying toilet paper for some reason in some stores. I'm not sure why, but um, we wanted to bring in our friend Tim Glantz. He is the uh, owner of Old Grouch's Military Surplus. And the reason why uh, I thought this would be of interest to you is that Tim has been uh, offering advice and products to people uh, who are concerned about these types of uh, pandemics or or catastrophes. And uh, so we thought, let's pick his brain a little bit. Tim, welcome. How are you? Hi, Pete. I'm I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing. I'm good. So the um, the coronavirus, COVID-19. So first off, um, what are you seeing at the store there in downtown Clyde? Um, I'm seeing uh, a lot of people that uh, a lot of people don't know exactly what to do, and, and they're coming in for advice. Uh, I've uh, I had some N95 masks, and those sold out quite a while ago uh, to people that were really paying attention early on. Uh, some that probably didn't need them. Uh, 
but I've had a whole lot of calls for uh, people looking for MREs, the military meals ready to eat that have the long shelf life. And I've been spending a lot of time explaining to people that that's not really what they need to get now. As much as I'd love to sell everybody in Western North Carolina a case of them, uh, they don't need to be spending their money on that right now. Why is that? And what's wrong with MREs? What's that? And a lot of anxiety from people where they don't know exactly what to go and what to do, but they, they feel like they need to be trying to get ahead of things. So what, why do you advise against MREs? Um, what's wrong with MREs aside from, right, the taste of them? No, I'm kidding. But what's, <laughs> aside, what's wrong with MREs? Well, uh, MREs are made for long-term storage. You know, you, you kept at room temperature, they'll go up to eight years. And uh, with that comes a price, you're going to look at, you know, if you're getting good fresh ones, you're going to look at between 7 and $9 a meal, and that's a lot of money. And what we're talking about with an event like this is something that's in the immediate future, so you're paying for long-term storage that you don't need. You can take the same money and go buy some, you know, rice, beans, and a lot of staples at, at the store and, you know, come out for the price of one MRE, get two or three days' worth of food and something in the staples. In fact, I... Uh, did a little exercise with somebody the other day. We went into the Dollar Tree, and we just looked at stuff, and they had dollar packs of rice, dollar packs of beans, dollar canned goods, and we figured you could get a, one person a, a week's supply for about $12. You're going to be kind of bland, and you're going to get tired of eating the same old thing, but you, you're going to be able to shelter in place without leaving the home and, and have food. So is this what people are generally asking about is is food, or are they, uh, are they asking about other types of uh gear and equipment or or supplies um mostly food uh and, and i think that's wise the i've had some people looking for uh wool blankets and sleeping bags they're concerned that you know utilities can't be kept going i've had some people looking for water filters for the same reason uh i don't think utilities in, in an event like this are going to be an issue i think if, if your government's trying to keep people from going out of their homes that keeping utilities on is in their best interest so they're going to put every effort they can into it i've had people uh a lot of people coming in looking for reading material on you know prepping i've taught at a lot of different preparedness conferences and events on things like logistics of uh kind of planning for events like this for, for folks that have been thinking about emergency preparedness in general but a lot of folks have come in looking for the how-to books and a lot of stuff like that to try to start learning. So is this, uh, I guess, kind of to veer off course a little bit, but this does seem like an opportunity for people to kind of get exposed to preparedness, to prepping, uh, which I think a lot of times gets a bad rap. Uh, you know, they do TV shows about, you know, people who go to the extreme side of the prepping. But uh, I remember doing an interview with some ladies, gosh, almost a decade ago, uh, and they ran a tea shop, but they also sold beans and rice and foodstuffs like that, specifically designed for uh, for emergencies. And they both came from, one came from Holland, if I recall correctly, and one came from Lebanon. And so in their family's history, in their history themselves, their own experience, they know what it was like to see food distribution systems disrupted. And so they just thought, like, this is just what everybody should do just in case of an emergency, like a snowstorm or a hurricane or something. So is this an opportunity yeah, it, for people to kind of get exposed to prepping without the, dare I say, stigma that gets attached to it? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you totally. And, and that's exactly the right track to take is look and say, 
you know, what do I need day to day if I can't leave the house? And when I've got people that are overwhelmed, I tell them, all right, look around your house for the day and say, if I couldn't leave the house today, would I have everything I need? And if the answer is no, you, you figure out what you need. And then you extend that to two days and three days and a week or two weeks. And I think uh, most of the authorities are telling everybody right now that you need to have enough supplies on hand for two weeks. And my general rule of thumb is take whatever they say and double it. Right. <laughs> because, you know, better safe than sorry. And what's the worst case scenario is you've got some extra food and you don't have to go shopping later. Uh, we're not talking about buying stuff that won't have any value. We're talking about having an extra supply of your food that you eat. Um, some things people don't think about much are medications. If you have people in your family that are dependent on medications for their health, uh, now's the time to call your doctor and your insurance company and say, hey, instead of the one-month refill, can I get a three-month so you've got some on hand? Uh, your pet food, if you've got pets, uh, think about what you're going to need for there. Once again, you know, if you buy a couple extra bags of dog food you just and you don't end up needing them, your dog's still going to eat, so you're uh, you're in good shape there. And the little things like that, uh, we're already seeing school closings uh, across the country, so if you have kids, think about what you're going to do to keep your kids occupied when you've got them at home seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and they, they can't go anywhere. Uh, think about things like that to occupy them as well. I guess the uh, the stock in Xbox and PlayStation is probably going to soar uh, with all of the kids home for <laughs> two straight weeks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, according to the CDC, their website, uh, cdc.gov forward slash coronavirus, uh, some of the supplies that they recommend, just like you did, uh, ask about getting extra medications, also over-the-counter medications and medical supplies like Facial tissues, you know, Kleenexes and stuff, because if you're going to have, if you do get a fever or something and you're going to have these symptoms, you know, you're going to want to have what you need at home to recover. So, you know, maybe some uh, some Gatorade fluids, stuff like that. Uh, also have enough household items and groceries on hand so uh, you know that you're going to be ready to stay home for a period of time. And like you said, they're not uh, they're not being specific because I think every situation is going to be different. But if they're saying two weeks, then yeah, probably look for long, a longer period of time. They say some uh, precautions. I know you did this because I was at your shop a couple of days ago. You've got uh, the hand sanitizer right outside the door. So before people can even touch the doorknob, they got to, <laughs> they got to sanitize down. Uh, so that's one of the things they recommend also washing your hands a lot and um, if soap and water is not available, use hand, sign, uh, sanitizer, uh, hand sanitizer that contains at least 60% alcohol. Um, so is, the, is this, I'm trying to think of anything like this that I've ever seen, and I have not. I'm 46, and uh, I've been through, what, uh, SARS and swine flu and bird flu and H1N1, right, and uh, the MERS or whatever it was. like. So these things do pop up, but never, it seems, to this extent, right? This seems to be like the most either serious or I guess you could say hyped up, but I don't think it's all hype. Um, I, I I just, I see this as, as unique. What about you? I, I agree. And, you know, I'm bit of a history buff and the only thing in in united states history that's you know a close parallel is the spanish flu epidemic in 1918 and if you look at uh, how that kind of went down you know it was 
a pretty serious illness, and we also did not have the advantages of uh, the medicine we have now or anything else. And if you read uh, all about that, it, it was a pretty scary time for a lot of people, especially when they didn't understand it, and especially when a lot of small towns and villages only had one doctor, and that doctor ended up sick, and then they had nothing, and they were just pretty much dealing with it, and you either got sick or didn't, and if you got sick, you either got better or you died. And that's the only time I don't think any of us living now, except for a handful of people that are, you know, almost 100, have seen anything like that in this country. So what what are you um, what are the main calls that you're fielding? It's all uh, people asking about, I'm assuming, right, masks and food, right? Those are the big ones. Masks and food are the big ones. Um, I've had a few people uh, call me. uh, We don't sell firearms, but uh, looking, they've never owned a gun and they've started to think, hey, maybe, you know, if people start to get crazy on things, I should have one. I think at this point you're a little behind the game if you've never had one and never learned to, to use one, to run out and buy one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had a few people calling in looking for full-bore military chemical protection suits, and I've had to tell them, you don't, I'll sell you one, <laughs> but you don't need it. You really don't need it. Um, oh, I've goodness. had a lot of calls just looking for general information and, and you know, asking my opinion, what do I think is going to happen? And I'm I tell them I'm sitting here watching it like everybody else, and anybody that tells you they know what's going to happen is making it up. Mm-hmm. And to be to be fair, and there's a lot of there are a lot of people that are that are that are hyping and spreading information that that is not accurate um, for different reasons. I think it's one of the problems living in this time that we're living in. There's so much information that people are now tuning things out that might actually be true because they can't know what to trust, and so they just dismiss everything. Uh, and I, look, I was like that when this started in China. Uh, I mean, I don't know what to believe coming out of China, right? So I'm just, <laughs> just ignore it. Like, I can't tell because it's the, the communist China. The, who knows what's true? Um, yeah. So it's hard to get a read on what's true and what's not. It is, and I think that's a lot of the anxiety people have. And I'm just I'm looking at uh, the CDC website, and I'm looking at what they say, and I'm trying to look at, you know, reliable sources. Uh, I, I trust my friends that are medical professionals when I talk to them and say, hey, what do you see here? And, you know, because uh, you're right, you see it all over the map. You see people saying, oh, they're just hyping this for this political angle, or, oh, it's worse than it is for this political angle or this personal angle. Uh, you see people, you know, trying to manipulate the information to to gain politically. You see people trying to do it for sales stuff. Uh, you know, I've seen some people in my business telling everybody they need to run and buy a gas mask, and I'm I'm like, no, it's not the time to be hyping this stuff and giving bad advice and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you you just have to really fil- really 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 try to filter out and figure out what is true and what's not, and that's difficult in this time. Yeah. Um, right. And I have to, I mean, I, I do, and maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong to trust, but you just said the CDC, I'm reading the CDC. I trust them on this stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm reading other doctors that are, you know, looking for this, looking for, there's a whole story about the, uh, uh, the virus hunter who's actually in North Carolina, the coronavirus hunter, and they are basically locked down in, uh, in a lab at, uh, UNC Chapel Hill in a secret location. And they're trying to, uh, figure out, you know, the the vaccines and stuff to combat this. And this guy's been hunting down coronavirus 
uh, outbreaks for years. And so, like, I'm going to trust him. You know, <laughs> when he talks, I'm going to I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Um, not necessarily the uh, the blue check mark on Twitter that uh, works as a columnist and is telling everybody that this could be, uh, you know, Trump's uh, Katrina or Chernobyl disaster. Like, I'm probably not going to trust that person. Um, yeah, so, one of my rules of thumb is anybody that puts a political spin on it, I just discount anything they say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if, if they say, hey, here's the appropriate response that this person needs to do, then it's one thing. But if they say, well, this is going to affect them this way or the other, or if they're looking past anything other than here's what we need to do to keep people safe, then, you know, I don't have any any trust in what they say because they've got the wrong thing um, as their agenda. Yeah, yeah, wrong motivation. Um, anything else here you want to add you think is important or interesting for folks to know before we let you go? No, uh, just, you know, uh, use some common sense, look around, and uh, if anybody, you know, wants to talk about this some more, uh, come by the shop and talk to me. I will say I've been kind of inundated with phone calls, so try not to call me for it, but if you want to drop by the shop, uh, I'm always here, and we've usually got two or three other people that are kind of knowledgeable, and we're, we're you know, the more prepared a community is, then the more prepared everybody is. I think that's something that people, you know, even in the prepping world tend to forget is you're not an island. You have to make a resilient community, and it starts with yourself and your neighbors and all that. So the more we can help everybody be ready for whatever happens to come down, the better off we all are. And the less strain there is on emergency services and everybody else to take care of the folks that weren't ready. Yeah. So. We, we, we we have to build resilient communities, and that means getting everybody kind of uh, the ball rolling to be ready for whatever happens to come. Tim Glantz, the owner of Old Grouch's Military Surplus, downtown Clyde, uh, the website oldgrouch.com. Tim, we appreciate your time. Thanks, man. Thanks, Pete. Okay, so let me go through some information here from the CDC about who is at risk for uh, for COVID-19 or coronavirus or Wuhan virus or whatever you want to call it, COVID-19. Um, it first started in China, Wuhan province. And so uh, according to the information that came out of China, some of the people that are higher risk of getting, excuse me, of getting very, very sick are older adults and people who have had or have serious chronic medical conditions like heart disease, diabetes, lung disease. If a COVID-19 outbreak happens here, it could be a long time. An outbreak is when a large number of people suddenly get sick. That's what they call it. That's when it's called an outbreak. Just a large number all become sick at once. And depending on how severe the outbreak is, public health officials could recommend that uh, people, you know, limit various actions and such in order to minimize exposure and to help spread the, or sorry, slow the spread uh, and reduce the impact of the disease. So if you are at higher risk, if you uh, are older, okay, and I've seen some of the charts, it's, you know, upwards of 55 years old, you know, and older, um, and the older you get, the more pronounced the the risks become. Uh, Also, if you have uh, serious chronic medical conditions, like heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, any kind of immuno uh, or you know immune system issues, then you are going to be at higher risk because of your age or because you've got these serious problems. And so the CDC says it is extra important for you to take actions to reduce your risk of getting sick. Um, and so they're recommending that people you know have supplies now 
So if um, if there is an outbreak of some kind, then you will be uh, prepared for it. Have a plan if you get sick. Consult with your health care provider for more information about monitoring your health for symptoms uh, that might be, you know, suggestive of COVID-19. You should stay in touch with other people by phone or email. You may need to ask for help for friend, uh, from friends and family and neighbors, community health workers if you get sick. Determine who can provide you with care if your caregiver gets sick too. Have a backup. Have a couple backups, right? So watch for symptoms. Pay attention for any symptom, including fever, cough, shortness of breath, If you feel like you're developing these symptoms, call your doctor. You don't necessarily need to go into a doctor. In fact, uh, Christy and I, we, uh, she went to see, uh, she got uh, a muscle pull. And so we went to go and try to get to uh, get into an urgent care clinic. And there are signs all over the clinics this weekend that, uh, you know, if you've got any of these symptoms, do not enter the building, turn around, go home, call the doctor. All right. If you develop emergency warning signs, the, uh, for COVID-19, get medical attention immediately. In adults, emergency warning signs like difficulty breathing or shortness of breath. If you have persistent pain or pressure in your chest, um, if you are experiencing any newly onset confusion or uh, what the CDC says, inability to arouse, so like you you, you having trouble getting out of bed, you're, oh, I'm just so tired, I can't get up, whatever. Bluish lips or face. I mean, that's just always generally a good idea, right? To, yeah, You should seek medical attention if you're turning blue. Um, and that list, by the way, is not all inclusive. There may be some other symptoms that you exhibit. So if you are, if you start feeling poorly, call your doctor. Um, please consult your medical provider for any other symptoms that are severe or concerning is what they say. What to do if you get sick? You want to stay home and call the doctor, number one. Call your health care provider. Let them know about your symptoms. Tell them you may, uh, that you either that you have or you may have COVID-19. This will help them take care of you and keep other people from getting infected or exposed. If you're not sick enough to be, hops, uh, to be hospitalized, you can recover at home. So you just follow the CDC instructions on how to take care of yourself at home. Uh, you can get them at cdc.gov slash coronavirus. Um, and so I highly recommend you go to the website now while you still feel well, uh, familiarize yourself with some of this stuff, uh, set up a plan. If you are in these um, these at-risk groups, have a plan, have supplies. Even if you're not in the at-risk group, have supplies. Um, and as Tim was mentioning, you know, bags of rice work great. Um, I guess that's why everybody was was trying to get all the toilet paper. <laughs> uh Let me tell you real quick here about the uh, coronavirus hunter. A deadly coronavirus arrived by courier on February 6th, delivered to a windowless airlocked laboratory in a secret location at uh, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill campus. It came sealed in two 500 microliter vials wrapped inside plastic pouches placed inside a third sealed plastic container, all packed with dry ice. A team of scientists protected head to toe by Tyvek bodysuits with battery powered respirators opened the vials and got down to work. And they haven't stopped since February 6th, over a month. Members of an elite lab of virologists at the university's Gillings School of Global Public Health And their mission is to come up with a drug to treat the pathogen that's already infected 
more than 90,000 people and killed more than 3,000. For veteran researcher and lab leader Ralph Barrick, it's the moment he has both long feared and expected. As early as the 1990s, Barrick's work was raising red flags. Coronaviruses had an extraordinarily high ability to mutate and adapt. You know why they're called coronaviruses? Because they, the, the, the look of them, when you look at them under the microscope, um, they, they have like this crown-looking spikes um, at the top that help them go into cells, that help them invade cells. Um, and so they have this high ability to mutate, and that means new coronaviruses might spread into humans in the future, he determined. In one study from the 90s, he showed that coronaviruses that infected mice could rapidly adapt to invade hamster cells. And until two months ago, Barrick was little known outside academic circles. When he began his career, coronaviruses were understood as causing little more than a common cold. But his work has now taken on new urgency. Barrick's 30-person team was one of the first in the United States to receive samples of the virus isolated from a patient in Washington State by CDC. A handful of other labs are also racing to find anything that might slow the virus's spread. Barrick's team is growing as much as the uh, uh, is growing as much of the virus as it can to test possible drugs for their ability to inhibit it inside human lung cells in a test tube. The first round of testing will likely wrap up soon, and if it works, scientists are going to test a slew of new drugs in mice that have been engineered to carry human lung receptors that the coronavirus can infect. This is all from a Bloomberg News article titled, The Coronavirus Hunter is Racing for Answers in a Locked-Down Lab. Again, Bloomberg News. Um, there is a drug uh, from Gilead Sciences Incorporated called Remdesivir, and uh, it's the most promising agent identified so far against the new virus. Trials are underway in China, and uh, they're hoping to get some results out of those tests uh, uh, this uh, or next month in April. Barrick's warnings about the dangers on coronaviruses were uh, proven first on the mark when SARS hit. It swept through China in 2002, then 2003, uh, and it killed almost 800 people. That virus originated in bats. In 2012, uh, a pathogen from camels, MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that began killing people in the Middle East, and eventually more than 850 died. In 2015, Barrick and his colleagues were able to show that SARS-like viruses in Chinese horseshoe bats posed a particular threat to cause a new outbreak, the virus spike in the bat coronavirus was unusually adaptable, allowing it to recognize receptors in a lot of different species, including human lung cells. And over the last five years, this guy Barrick, working closely with Vanderbilt University's infectious disease specialist Mark Dennison, they tested more than 200,000 drugs against SARS and MERS and other bat coronavirus strains. He found at least two dozen that appear to hinder the virus. So there are drugs out there that show some bit of promise here. So um, that's a positive because of the work this guy's been doing now for, you know, what, going on 30 years. Since all of this, since then, his uh, work at his lab has been virtually nonstop since they got the viruses and since all of this has erupted um, in, they got the viruses delivered in February. Every scientist puts in from one to six hours inside two different clean rooms that are equipped to handle the virus. The lab's workday starts at 6 a.m. and it goes to 11 p.m. every single day. Individual sessions are kept short for safety and practical reasons. 
researchers are not allowed to eat or drink or go to the bathroom once they're inside the lab. So everybody has to pass an FBI background check. They got to undergo months of safety training too. They got to scrub up. They got to um, uh, you know put on all the gear and stuff. That takes like 15 minutes uh, and includes putting on multiple layers of Tyvek suits nitrile gloves and booties, along with an air purifying respirator powered by a battery that they wear in like a belt around their waist. And um, leaving the lab takes just as long. You know, they got to spray themselves down repeatedly with um, these. uh, It's a solution. It's like 70 percent alcohol. uh, So they got to spray themselves down with 70 percent alcohol as they take off every layer of clothing. So, oh, yeah, it's kind of like college. Um, yeah, same thing. So that's a, just come on. All right. It's a Bloomberg news article. The coronavirus hunter is racing for answers in a lockdown lab. Bloomberg news. Um, also here's what you can do. Some tips, avoid close contact with people who are sick, obviously, but avoiding all close contact, um, stay home. If you feel sick, please stay home. Cover your mouth and nose. Respiratory illnesses like coronavirus are spread by cough, sneezing, or unclean hands. Wash your hands. Please, people. That's just a general this, like, rule of thumb. Always wash your hands. <laughs> Washing your hands often helps you protect you from germs. If soap and water not available, use the hand sanitizer. Avoid touching your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. So nose pickers are going to be particularly uh, at risk here, I suspect. Germs uh, are spread when a person touches something that is contaminated with the germs and then touches his or her eyes, nose, or mouth. Okay, so that's how it's most likely spread. Um, Also, here's some good habits. Clean and disinfect frequently touched surfaces at home, work, or school, especially uh, if somebody at home, at work, or at school is sick. Right. So those are just those are just good ideas, good ideas uh, in general. So, um, again, all of this information or a lot more information, I should say, is up at the CDC's website, CDC.gov forward slash coronavirus, CDC.gov forward slash coronavirus. Um, I'll be bringing you more information about this on the podcast. And if you like this show and the content that we're doing here, please subscribe to the podcast. Give it a thumbs up. Do a review. We would really appreciate that. And consider becoming a patron of the program. You'll get the coveted I'm a Giver sticker. Uh, you'll get access to exclusive content. Uh, merchandise will soon be uh, rolling out as well as events. Links are all at thepetecalendarshow.com. Thepetecalendarshow.com. Thank you so much for the support. I really do appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. 